0: Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to the Loving Liberty program, hour two of a two-hour show. Got a pretty good head of steam built up here, so hang with me if you can. I want to share with you this hour some thoughts on uh, freedom of speech. Is it falling out of favor? You know, it's crazy, but there's, there's a growing number of Americans who uh, really are like, you know what, we really should be able to outlaw certain types of speech. And I think you know who I'm talking about. You know the ones who want to correct you on, you know, you're using the wrong pronoun, or you can't say that word anymore, or anyway, there's there's a constant reinvention of language. But there are people willing to take it a step further and turn it into, no, there should be criminal penalties if you say something that uh, that I don't agree with. So as you might guess, I, I feel like I have a vested interest there, to the point that uh, I might want to say something. <laughs> before I'm, I'm told, hey, listen, dude, you can no longer speak. Yeah, you're, you're apparently too dangerous. Your thoughts are, are too dangerous. Take him to room 101 or whatever it was in uh, 1984. Actually, I want to start with an article from Annie Holmquist titled Socialism and the City. Is there a connection? And she gives voice to something that I've wondered about often throughout my life, and that is why is it That when you get into heavily populated areas, that it seems like collectivist thinking really finds a a ready home. People tend to embrace it. Is it by choice? Well, there's so many people that got to do something, you know, got to give up some freedoms. Rousseau, I hear you try to make the the case here that every, you know, every tradeoff that you have to make in order to live among others. But I don't think that's it. Here's how Annie Holmquist sums it up. She says, I took a breather from work the other day and trotted off to visit a friend. While there, I spent some time in the North Carolina mountains, and she says they were beautiful. Winding roads, soaring slopes, mountain streams and lakes, the paintbrush of fall touching the trees. Nestled amidst this beauty is Connemara, the last home of American author and poet Carl Sandburg. The three-time Pulitzer Prize winner moved to this mountain retreat in 1945 after his wife Lillian decided it was an ideal place to raise her internationally acclaimed goats. According to the tour guide, Sandberg greeted Lillian's request to buy Connemara with a comment about the steep price. Then, resignedly, he said, well, I guess I'll have to go on a few tours. Well, those tours paid off and soon the Sandberg settled at the Connemara, at Connemara mortgage free. Now, she says, I chuckled at Sandberg's ready use of capitalistic practices for Sandberg was a democratic socialist, a political affiliation keen to spread wealth around through collectivist practices. Yet as I looked around, she says I couldn't help but see why Sandberg was willing to take full advantage of capitalism to buy his beautiful farm. Who wouldn't want to live there? What a place it would be for a writer. Solitude and majestic, majestic scenery. It was the same scenery that gave me pause because it recalled one of Sandberg's contemporaries, Whitaker Chambers. Like Sandberg, Chambers was what one might label an activist, yet in a much more subtle way. His life was undergirded by Marxist philosophy, first as a member of the working class, then later as a member of the communist underground in America. Yet all through his autobiography, Witness, there runs a thread of longing and wonder for the beauty of the countryside. As Chambers himself testifies, quote, communism is a faith of the cities and one can look upon the countryside only to organize, that is to say, to destroy it. And while simply to enter a city is for me always like a little like entering a grave, he says, in those years, I forced myself to live in New York and learn to shut my mind and my eyes against it, because to open either to it filled me with dislike and disgust. As a communist, that is to say, a man dedicated to directing history, I had no choice, for it is clear that the history of the 20th century will be determined by the cities, not by the countryside, end quote. That's a fascinating quote. And Annie Holmquist says, But it was the times when Chambers and his family broke free from the city that he seems to have more clarity of thought. In particular, this occurred in the mid-1930s when they rented a little stone house near an apple orchard. Again, quoting Chambers. In retrospect, he said, It is clear that our life in the stone house had influences on us, which at the time, and even much later, we did not realize. I suspect that in that simple, beautiful, and tranquil haven, a subtle chemistry began its work, which, if it were possible to trace it, would be found to have played an invisible part in my break with communism. End quote. So Annie Holmquist says Seeing the similarities between Chambers and Sandberg, I asked the tour guide if the latter had changed his political opinions later in life as he spent more time on the farm, although unsure. The tour guide did note that Sandberg became less of an activist in later years. And she says, I find this intriguing because many young people today are following in the steps of young chambers and Sandberg. As a recent poll notes, 70% of millennials are very open to voting for a socialist candidate. Furthermore, it appears that millennials are willing to take the democratic socialism of Sandberg to the next level, given their embrace of the communist manifesto. Only 57% of millennials believe the Declaration of Independence better guarantees freedom and equality over the Communist Manifesto. Now, she says there are many things which could be driving the acceptance of these related political philosophies. Could the millennial attraction to city life be one contributor? Have we so removed our young people from the wonder, beauty, and solitude of the country? That they no longer have space in which to think freely about the values they hold and the direction their lives are going. And in doing so, have we made it all the easier for them to become adherents of a faith of the cities? That's pretty intriguing. You have some thoughts on it? Let's hear them. 801-331-8113. Let's go right to the phone. Hi, welcome to Loving Liberty. Hey, Brian. Hello there.
1: Something uh, that occurs to me, or um, as, as you brought the subject up, is you know having lived in a, a good mix of uh, urban, suburban, and rural areas, you know in my relatively short time on Earth, um, the overall. The tone of the different areas is very different. You know, growing up in a very rural area, you know, the the overall way that people acted and made decisions was, you know, when they encountered a problem, uh, their first thought is, how can I solve it? When something was wrong with their neighbor, you know, how can I help, how can I help my neighbor? Um, versus, you know, it, it's a very subtle difference. It, it's a very subtle difference sometimes But you know, now that I live in a more suburban area, and you know, when I was serving a mission, it was in a very urban area part of it. Um, the question people ask first more often is who can help me? Or who can I get to help my neighbor? Or in the worst case, who can I get to make my neighbor do what I want them to do? Right. For? How can I control my neighbor? <laughs> yeah.
0: Fascinating.
1: I think that you know, if we're if we're going to return America to, you know, the direction the founders intended, I'm I'm not I'm not under any illusion that, you know, even as they framed it, it was very, very good, but it was far from perfect, but it was moving in the right direction.
0: Oh, I would agree. <laughs> I would agree.
1: No, um, so we we've, we've got to find a way to raise children and mentor the children and people around us to reframe their problem solving. How can I fix this problem rather than who can I get to fix this problem for me?
0: I love it. John, thank you so much for your call. He nails it too, though. There's there's that, there's that a degree of personal responsibility that comes about in a more rural setting. One of the best examples I've heard of this is, um, you know, in a city, somebody drives by and they see a fire hydrant leaking. What's the reaction going to be? Oh, somebody better do something about that. Maybe somebody would think, oh, man, I, I, I'd like to stop and help, but, you know, I should probably ask permission. Hey, is it OK if I go ahead and tighten up, you know, this uh, this leaky fire hydrant? Whereas if that were to happen in a rural area, a farmer driving by in his dilapidated old pickup truck with his tools right there sees the leak. What does he do? He doesn't stop and ask permission He doesn't just shrug his shoulders, well, that's somebody else's problem, not mine. He takes responsibility because he wants to know if he can help personally. He gets out, he fixes the problem, and goes on with his day. That's a totally different mindset, right? From how most of us have been trained to view things. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. 801-331-8113 is the number. All right, this just came across my computer screen, and it's so good I have to share it. I think this has happened to all of us. Have you ever gone to say something, and maybe you tried to say two different things at the same time, and you came up with a mishmash of it, and it just made you look and sound like a complete fool? Well, a friend of mine, Shiloh Logan, has uh, posted. uh, It's a collection of several of these (laughs) Here's this. This is the first one to start out. A person writes, today at work, I let someone into a dressing room and they said, thanks. And half of me tried to say, you're welcome. The other half tried to say, no problem. And I ended up saying, your problem. (laughs) How do you come back from something like that? Here's another one. This is sparking people to to share their, their own instances of when they've misspoken. Yesterday at Target, the cashier said, your receipt is in the bag. And I responded with, you too. So I've been dealing with that for the past 18 hours, but I'm slowly coming to terms with it, which is cool. <laughs> or this one. My friend was driving and we were almost past our turnoff, so I tried to say quick and fast at the same time and ended up screaming quack, which ended up with him judging me very hard and missing the turn. Nah. Can't share that one. Or that one. Darn it. yeah there's a couple of these that are maybe a little bit salty so i won't i won't share them okay so i meant to say oh crap i left my phone in my car but what i almost said was oh no i left my cone in my far and dang wouldn't that have been embarrassing but i actually caught myself and what i actually said was ah my fart cone so anyway that's funny how about this one? One time I went to hand someone a bowl of hot soup and my brain tried to say, careful, it's hot. And here's your soup. So instead I blurted out, careful, it's soup. <laughs> uh, okay, just one more. Then I'm going to get onto some calls here. I had to go to the library and pay a fee. And I was practicing in the car between I have to pay a fine and I have to pay a fee, and I walked in and firmly stated I have to pee and slapped a five dollar bill on the counter. The fee was like ten cents and walked out. And this person says that was like three years ago, and I still haven't been back. (laughs) Ah, thank you for brightening my day, those of you who've misspoken, and I've done it myself. I've just mercifully blocked those memories, and I'm repressing them on all cylinders right now. Let's go to the phone. Hi, welcome to Loving Liberty. Hello. Hello there. Is that me? That's you.
2: Oh, I didn't hear the... The so beam me up, Scotty. Yeah, we're pretty stealthy okay.
0: about that now. We just, <laughs> just kind of, boom, you're on.
2: All right, I'm on. Woo better make it good. So yeah, uh, socialism, I don't know why people need to wait for the government to give them permission to do something that they can practice privately amongst their friends and family. If socialism is such a brilliant idea, then people would do it organically. They wouldn't wait for permission. Just like capitalism. If I lived in a, you know, you know capitalist, uh, or not capitalist, socialist societies, people constantly try to practice capitalism by uh, operating in the underground economy. That proves that capitalism is an organic movement that people favor because they do it in spite of uh, the opposition. But people can—I mean—people can get together with millions of other Americans today and pool their money and resources and have their medical um, expenses paid for out of that fund. Here, here. Why don't they start doing it today?
0: I think. It, okay, I have—I have a couple but, of thoughts on this. One is we're trained at a very early age that we have to ask permission to, for everything. I mean, there are adults who will be sitting in a meeting today who, if they have to go to the bathroom, won't just excuse themselves and go to the bathroom. They'll put their hand up. May I be excused? Where do you suppose they learned that behavior?
2: Oh, high school and kindergarten. Kindergarten. Grade school. And, and yeah. every grade from there on. <laughs>
0: exactly. Yeah.
2: I'm a school teacher, by the way, Brian. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I get. I, sometimes I ask my students... Actually, I'm not a full-time teacher, but I did do, do a lot of substituting. But they ask me for permission, and I say, well, why do you why are you asking me? Don't you think you have the right to do that? Just to tease them, you know. And they're just conditioned to do that.
0: I love how subversive that is. <laughs> and I think it's in a good way. It's in a good way, because, yeah, it's, it, I, I think you nailed it. You know, the, we, we have this impression that, well, we have to ask permission for everything. And, and I'm going to go back to what you mentioned about capitalism. It used to be that exchange was something you could just freely do with one another. But we're to the point now where everybody has it drilled into their heads. Well, we have to ask permission. If I want to, you know, if I want to exchange something with my neighbor, I've got to make sure that that's okay and not against some law. And you know what's crazy? Sometimes it is against the law. Whatever sparked a law like that?
2: Yeah, this this sense to control us as human beings. And, you know, there, there are levels of government. There's your federal level. Brian, there's your state level, and there's your municipal municipal level, and then there's your neighborhood level. But you know what the most important level of government is? Tell me. Kind of a trick question. Self-government. Amen,
0: bro. (laughs) I was hoping that's what you'd say.
2: (laughs) You know, um, Joseph Smith, he founded the city of Nauvoo, Illinois, and when an outside visitor came to town, he said, well, I notice you don't, don't have any police officers running around keeping order. Why is that? And Joseph Smith said that if you teach people the correct principles, they will govern themselves. And that was true. So Joseph Smith, as far as I know, was the first great American libertarian. People don't know that.
0: Well, and, and I think libertarian. one of the biggest yeah. obstacles that we face right now is not making sure that we get the right person in the White House next year. I think one of the biggest tasks that we have as lovers of freedom is to help our fellow citizens understand that they are not broken. That they don't need some little clique of ruling elites to tell them everything they have to do. They they can they right. they can take charge of their own lives in so many areas, and they should do it.
2: Yeah, we need to have laws written in our hearts rather than on uh, on law books or whatever.
0: Beautifully but, said.
2: Uh, Yeah, it depends on what type of people you have in your society, and that's why immigration is so important. We don't just let everybody in. We let people that are most likely to be able to uh, fit into the American culture, which is self-reliance.
0: Well, and and And, uh, what you said about having laws written in your own heart, um, if you are trained to believe you're not good enough to make these decisions for yourself, if you teach people that long enough, over generations, you're going to get people who act like that. Well, we're broken. We yeah. need laws to keep us in line. You know, and that's, that's why they, they, they refer to the law as the, the measure of what is right and what is wrong.
2: Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's a principle that is definitely not reinforced, you know, whether it's the Republicans or Democrats. They always propose legislation to change things. You know, the president should be giving fireside chats just like Franklin Delano Roosevelt did, except in his fireside Hi. chats... Our current president, if he really is a constitutionalist, he would articulate constitutional principles because they're certainly not getting that in our uh, educational institutions, and that's what uh, that's one of the biggest problems I have with our president now. He's not educating the people on the banking system under which we toil, um, the Constitution, the principles that made this country great, and they need to be written in our hearts. And it's a golden opportunity for him to have these fireside chats. And to enlighten the people, and it would make a world difference, but he's never going to do it because he's controlled. So I guess
0: Absolutely. we'll just have to learn those on our own.
2: Yep.
0: I mean, that's. All right, Brian. Okay, thanks, thanks so much for the call. Look, th- there's, there's a meme out there. I wish I could remember who, uh, who first wrote it, but it's brilliant. And it's along the lines of No person who wishes to rule you will ever give you authority to defy them. Now, for, for authoritarians, they'd be like, why would you want to defy somebody in authority anyways? Huh? Are you a troublemaker? You have some kind of disorder? By the way, there is a, there is an actual disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, odd, that they use to describe people who have a trouble with arbitra- arbitrary authority. But you get the point, don't you? Would you expect the system that wants to rule you to teach you about the upper limits of its power and where it is forbidden to go? Absolutely not. Because it wants you to believe that, oh, it can do anything. Why, if enough people say this is what we want, we can do anything. Well, can we suspend the law of gravity? Yes, if enough people vote for it. It's on you and me. We have to be the ones who have to be willing to pay the price to learn. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. I know there might still be a few people kind of getting through this. uh, Wait a minute. uh, Is this... Have we shifted things around schedule-wise And the fact of the matter is, yeah, there have been a couple of changes um, But uh, this uh, this is uh, this is going to be my time slot for the foreseeable future And I'm, I'm happy to have it Welcome to our, our listeners on uh, KTalk 1640 And everybody else on the Loving Liberty Network And of course, those of you who find the time in your own personal lives To download and listen to the podcast Let's go back to the phone My friend Ray has found me at last Hi, Ray
3: <laughs> I have sure missed you. I, I do. I do try and catch you every chance I get. Though I, I've always l- really enjoyed the content that you come up with for your shows. Uh, you, you're very unique.
0: You're very, you're very unique. kind. Thank you.
3: And, and I, I like the direction that this uh, topic is going. And, and I'd like to uh, continue in the in the direction that I think it's going. And that is th- this country. Um, history has proven that th- this country was founded, was based on the Bible. And, and anyone that doesn't know that does not know history. And and the the thing is, is that well, and they also studied Rome and Greek, you know, Greece and Gr- the Greek history. And, you know, the Senate, that, you know, that's why we have a democratic republic. And, and now, um, uh, uh, moving more towards the direction that I think we're going, and that is that the, the, I'll make a leap here and then try to clean it up. Okay. And that, that is in, in the New Testament. The Old Testament is the letter of the law, which no one can live per- perfectly. Uh, and... um And the New Testament is a spirit of the law. And I remember a scripture that goes something like, um, um, he that lives by the spirit um, needs not law or or something, you know, to that effect. And and to me, what it means is, is unfortunately, a lot of people deny that there is a spiritual aspect to to life. You know, there's no question. When I was with my dad, when he died, well, well there's no time to go into that but, but the point is the people who who you know add that dimension to their life to the relationships a spiritual dimension you know um we live by a higher law we, we try try to live by a higher law and, and of course self-government self-rule you, you know um Like the previous caller said, Joseph Smith said that I teach him correct principles and they govern themselves.
0: Ray, are you familiar with Alexander Solzhenitsyn?
3: I've heard the name. But okay. I, I've always wanted to look at study him more.
0: If you can ever get your hands on any of his books, um, the Gulag Archipelago is probably my favorite, simply because it was written um, about his experiences in the Soviet Gulag. He he was imprisoned for I think nine years because he wrote a letter when he was in the Soviet army that was. Um, just less than flattering about Stalin. And one of Stalin's people saw it. Well, he we can't do that. They arrested him. They threw him in the gulag and just darn near worked him to death. But he had an observation that I think goes so well with what you just described here. And And he said he had to be laying there on the rotting straw, freezing to death, being worked almost to death, you know, and being abused in the gulag. But he says, gradually it came to me. That the purpose of life was not materialism, as we had been told, but rather the maturing of the human soul, oh wow. And through the rest oh, of his writings, you you will see that man had insights that are among the most powerful I've ever read outside of scripture.
3: I, I love that. I, I definitely am going to look into that. Um, Yes, yes. Because uh, we spend so much time, you know, in acquisition, and unfortunately, the youth won't listen to us. You know, in in the fifties, we worked eight-hour days we week weekend off. You know, you could get to get a job in a factory right out of high school. You didn't even need a high school diploma, but that job would be for life, and you had medical, you had retirement, and you uh, most of your time was devoted to relationships, your family, extended family, neighbors, barbecues. You know, now, unfortunately, both couples are working, and we're just so into acquiring. I mean, mean, you know, I retired at 51, but I had to go back to work because of medical. And we've lost, you know, why are we working, you know, so we can... Enjoy our relationships, to enjoy life. You know,
0: it, uh, uh, did you happen to hear? Uh, maybe you didn't get a chance to hear in the last hour. Um, I, I shared an article about how kids exchanging Halloween candy is actually a form of trade. It's, it's, they're, they're, they're sharing wealth. And one of the points there was that <laughs> wealth is not just stuff, but it's, it's what matters most to you. And so, in context of what you're saying, I had to reach a point where there was a time where I I, I measured my worth by what's my paycheck or what's my bank account showing. And if I was earning more money, I was like, yeah, this is a sign that I am succeeding in life. And my (laughs) wife had to pull me aside and tell me at one point, your kids are growing up without you. And and when that sunk in, I had to start measuring wealth differently. And since that time, I've measured it um, not exclusively, but in large part by how much time do I get to spend with members of my family?
3: Yes. You know, and it's interesting. My wife grew up in a small town in Idaho, and she's still in touch with people that she went through grammar school and teacher high, high school with, you know, in college. she, she it, It's amazing how she stays in touch. I grew up in L.A., a city, and I'm not in touch with anyone that I, I grew up with, you know. And even my family were spread out all over America. And, you know, is this really the American dream? You know, have we lost it? And back to self-rule, you know, and, and rectitude. You, you know, we, we govern ourselves, and not out of fear, out of punishment, but just out of the sense of right and wrong, you know, just human decency. And relationships are so rare. Long-term relationships are so valuable. You know, uh, the first time I was, went, had chemotherapy for leukemia, I came to realize that the only thing... We can take with us when we die and have through the eternities is our character and our relationships. Yeah, That's man. what's of highest value.
0: I so appreciate you bringing that up. Ray, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on here because I've got another topic I want to hit. But thanks, thanks for calling in. Great to hear from you.
3: Likewise. I sure have missed you, Brian. Always enjoy your shows.
0: Thank All right. Well, you that, so now you know where to find me and know that you are a welcome guest. Um, I want to talk a little bit about free speech. And particularly, I want to I want to share with you an article. I believe uh, Jacob Sulem from Reason Magazine is the one who wrote this article. The survey finds speech restrictions are pretty popular. That's why we need the First Amendment. And the subtitle here just says, Most Respondents, especially Millennials, said they favored viewpoint-based censorship, suppression of hurtful or offensive speech in certain contexts, and legal penalties for wayward news organizations. Now, he starts by saying the First Amendment is unpopular. That's why we need the First Amendment. A recent survey commissioned by the Campaign for Free Speech underlines that point. Finding that most Americans actually support viewpoint based censorship, suppression of hurtful or offensive speech in universities or on social media, government action against newspapers and TV stations that print or air biased, inflammatory, or false content, and revising the First Amendment, which it says goes too far in allowing hate speech to reflect the cultural norms of today. Holy cow. Now, Solom says that last position was endorsed by just 51% of respondents compared to 42% who disagreed and 7% who had no opinion. But he says 57% favored legal penalties for wayward news organizations. 61% supported censorship of hurtful or offensive speech. In certain contexts, 63% said the government should restrict the speech of racists, neo-Nazis, radical Islamists, Holocaust deniers, anti-vaccine activists and or climate change skeptics. It's a pretty broad net, huh? On a more heartening note, Jacob Solem says the article the idea rather of tasking a government agency with reviewing the output of alternative media sources only managed to muster support from just 36% of respondents, although opponents still fell short of a majority. Likewise, with a law against hate speech, which 48% favored, just 31% opposed it. Now, we've got to go to break here in just a moment, but you understand what that portents, don't you? This is... This is a survey asking people, hey, would you be okay with us outlawing certain kinds of speech that you may find disagreeable or otherwise, uh, you know, find offensive? And that's a far larger number of people who are like, yeah, dang right, I'd support that, than I would have thought possible. We'll come back to this article in just a few moments. This is Loving Liberty. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. Let's have us a little chat about free speech. There's not a lot that makes me go, oh, wait a minute, clutch my chest and have to find somewhere to sit real quick. But as I'm reading Jacob Solem's article on Reason.com about a recent survey commissioned by the Campaign for Free Speech, it's a little bit scary to see how many Americans would support viewpoint-based censorship. In other words, they would say they'd be okay with suppression of what they would deem hurtful or offensive speech, either in universities or on social media. They'd be okay with government action against newspapers or TV stations that print or air biased, inflammatory, or false content. In fact, they'd even be okay with revising the First Amendment, which some say goes too far in allowing hate speech. By the way, the part that chills me the most about that last little bit is not only that they want to revise the First Amendment to reflect the cultural norms of today, that is the most direct attack on freedom of religion that you will likely see within your lifetime. If such a movement were to gain speed, if there were something like that to be put into motion, I promise you the churches are the places they would be targeting. And they would probably do it with a kind of zealousness that would make the communist Chinese seem reasonable by comparison. Now, Bob Leistat is executive director of the Campaign for Free Speech. He told the Washington Free Beacon the findings of this survey are, frankly, extraordinary. He says our free speech rights and our free press rights have evolved well over 200 years. Now people seem to be rethinking them. End quote. Jacob Solem says we have no data for prior years from this poll, which was conducted by Caravan Surveys in early September with a sample of about 1,000 adults. It's therefore hard to say, based on these results, whether Americans are actually rethinking their support for freedom of speech or simply expressing the qualms they've always had. Solom also points out survey data from the Freedom Forum Institute indicate that the share of Americans who think the rights guaranteed in the First Amendment go too far has fluctuated quite a bit since 1999. It was 29% in a survey conducted this year, which is higher than in the previous four years, but far from a record during the last two decades. Still, he says the breakdown of responses by age in the Campaign for Free Speech survey doesn't bode well for our future. (sighs) Sorry, you're going to feel like we're we're singling out the millennials, but on almost every question, it was the millennials ages 21 to 38 who were more likely to support speech restrictions than the older respondents were. Contrary to what you might think, people with college degrees were less inclined to favor speech restrictions than respondents who either did not attend or did not complete college. There is a little bit of uh, hope in this, though. And I won't have a chance to go into this in too much detail, but my understanding is Generation Z, which follows the millennials, this would include a lot of the the folks now entering their late teens into their early 20s. They're kind of tired of all the uh, speech codes and all the social justice bullying. So they may be a little bit tougher sell on this, but the millennials, holy cow they don't like, that people can say things that they don't agree with. Jacob Solem says if the rights guaranteed by the First Amendment were consistently supported by most Americans, of course, there would be little need to enshrine them in the Constitution. The whole point of a constitutional guarantee is to protect fundamental rights against the whims of passing majorities. And he says, while well, Leistat is right to, that a decisive turn in public opinion against free speech and the press could jeopardize these liberties in the long term. He says, it's not clear that we're experiencing such a shift. But let that sink in what he just said here about the whole point of a constitutional guarantee, whether it's free speech, free press, freedom of religion, freedom to assemble, freedom to petition for redress of grievances. Freedom to keep and bear arms. That's to protect fundamental rights against the whims of passing majorities. Something to think about. If the proper role of government is to keep us free, that's why those uh, those things enumerated in the Bill of Rights don't grant us anything. They don't give us a thing. What they do is they put a very firm line in the sand in front of government saying, you will not do this. This is out of your purview. And a few members of the black-robed priesthood have sought here and there to whittle that down. Well, of course, there is no absolute right, blah, 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 blah. But the bottom line is, until you have measurably harmed another person or their property, Government needs to stay out of it. And when it comes to free speech, the the solution to bad ideas is not to start restricting, well, what ideas are allowed and what aren't. Come on, even a blind man could see that that is just inviting anybody with an agenda to jockey so that they're the one who's in a position of power to determine what is allowed and what isn't. It's all about squelching unpopular points of view because you have the power to do so. Isn't this what the social justice warriors are doing right now? No, the answer is if there are bad ideas out there, and and granted, there have been some bad ideas that have come along from time to time. The best antidote is more free speech. And it's kind of funny because, you know, the, the, the same thing here, you know, applies in some ways to the Second Amendment argument about, you know, government shouldn't be restricting people's right to keep and bear arms. I saw a thing the other day in 1900. A British gentleman had access to pretty much any weapon he wanted. He could have any firearm he wanted. Crime was so low that the British bobbies rarely were armed. Have you seen what the British police look like these days? They've disarmed everybody. They're even taking their butter knives from them. And the British police are walking around with submachine guns slung around their necks. Funny how that works, isn't it? Just like the answer to more, to, to bad ideas rather, is more free speech. The answer to crime is you empower more people to be able to protect themselves. And I know to the anti-gun crowd that's well—that's just an invitation for us to turn into the wild, wild west. People will kill themselves, will kill their uh, their neighbors. They'll kill people in the parking lot over a parking spot. I remember what the what the hysteria was back in 1995 when a number of states decided it was time to, to move off the, well, we have to deny anybody the right to carry a concealed weapon, and they converted that right into a privilege with concealed carry licenses. Now, at, 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 a, at a very basic level, I do not agree with paying the state for the privilege of exercising a right, which is mine, by virtue of the fact that I'm a living, breathing human being. But at least the state acknowledged it's okay for people to have a firearm in their possession. It doesn't make you a criminal just because you have a firearm any more than it makes you a criminal just because you have a pocket knife in your pocket. What makes you a criminal is when you're engaged in activity that is actively harming another person or his or her property. And the states that led out in, I'm going to use the word, liberalizing their their firearms laws or reducing their restrictions or reducing the weight of government enforcement on those who choose to defend themselves, they haven't seen it turn into a bloodbath. And in the same respect, you would not see a rise in hate speech if people are allowed to speak freely. If you hear something, you know, if you hear an opinion that, that bothers you, gets you hot under the collar and you think, man, that is just such a load of garbage. The worst thing in the world you can do is go out there and lobby some politician. There ought to be laws restricting a person from doing this. And you, you heard some of the things aren't even, you know, it's not like Nazis standing there chanting. It could be something as, saying, as simple as saying, I don't believe in this whole global warming thing or the whole global climate crisis thing. Well, then you're a climate denier. We should ban your speech. I mean some European countries if someone questions the Holocaust they'll throw them in jail they've done it I don't think that's the right response instead flood the marketplace with better ideas truth will will out John Milton recognized this hundreds of years ago when he was begging the king of England don't restrict free speech I'm paraphrasing, but he said, Whoever knew truth to be put to the worse in an open contest between truth and error. You gotta have some faith in your ideas and be less concerned about shutting somebody else up because you don't like their ideas. Show me why yours are better. Don't tell me why theirs are so bad. Voices of truth and insight. This
1: is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.